Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolfhawk. And today we're going to talk about anesthesia for thoracic surgery. I've had a lot of requests for this and so decided to put something together. A lot of this comes from the fantastic textbook, Bearish Clinical Anesthesia. I highly recommend it for folks looking for a good textbook out there. I make no money from it at all and have no relationship other than that I think it's a great uh, textbook and they do a great job. All right, so let's talk about thoracic surgery. Initially, preoperatively, one of the big things, and this gets tested quite a lot, is the need to focus on the extent and severity of both pulmonary and cardiac disease to figure out if the patient can tolerate the procedure. The most common complications after thoracic surgery are pulmonary, most commonly pneumonia and atelectasis, and so you want to take that into account. Folks who are at high risk are folks with advanced age, poor health status, COPD, though obviously that's a common indicator for thoracic surgery if it's bad enough, Uh, folks who are obese with a BMI greater than 30, with a low initial FEV1 and a low post-op predicted FEV1. Now, we'll get back to talking about post-op predicted spirometry values because that does get tested a lot. On the history, you want to think about whether the patient has exertional dyspnea. That definitely implies significant reduction in their reserve, and it correlates with an FEV1 less than 1.5 liters and therefore a possible need for post-op ventilatory support. If they have a productive cough, you want to be aware of that because if it's new or acute, you really need to rule out infection. If it's chronic, obviously, then it's chronic, but if it's a new infection, then you want to treat that before surgery. If it's bloody, you want to think that that may indicate that the tumor is invading the airways, which, if it's proximal, can really complicate your intubation, and you want to be aware of that. Smoking is, of course, the main risk factor for uh, lung cancer. If you have a smoking history, or an extensive smoking history at least, you can have between 15 and 30 times greater chance of developing lung cancer compared to someone who has never smoked. Exercise tolerance is something to ask about. People can walk up three flights of stairs. They're thought to be at reduced risk for pulmonary surgery. And if they are unable to climb two flights of stairs at all, then they're at increased risk. Preoperative alcohol abuse and the need for a complete pneumonectomy also put patients at high risk for post-op lung injury. In terms of their cardiac system, it's not uncommon for patients who need thoracic surgery to have pulmonary hypertension. 
due either to reduced area of the pulmonary vascular bed from destruction from their lung disease or from chronic hypoxemia leading to development of increased um, airway resistance in the lungs. So it's important to think about that and be aware of whether or not they do have pulmonary hypertension and how uh, that may affect your management intraoperatively. The EKG on these patients may show signs of both right ventricular and right atrial hypertrophy. They can have an enlarged P wave in lead two, which is indicative of an uh, right atrial hypertrophy. They can have an R to S ratio of greater than one. That's when the R wave voltage exceeds the S wave voltage in lead V1, where it should, of course, be the other way around. And that is associated with right ventricular hypertrophy. And they can have low voltage from lung hyperinflation if they have COPD with hyperinflated lungs, which is a classic chest X-ray finding. The pre-op ABG can tell if they're a retainer of CO2, as can a preoperative basic metabolic panel, by looking at the bicarbonate. So if a patient has a chronically elevated bicarb, let's say at 35, then they are likely compensating for retained, chronically retained CO2. Pulmonary function tests can help identify people who are at risk of post-op morbidity and mortality, folks who will need post-op ventilatory support, and they can evaluate the benefit of bronchodilators, so to figure out if some of the defect that patients may have in their ability to to perform these lung tests can be improved with bronchodilators. And if so, and that's usually estimated about 15% improvement is considered a positive response. And if that happens, then they should be started on bronchodilators before surgery, and those should be continued throughout the perioperative period. An abnormally low vital capacity puts them at risk for post-op complications and mortality. The ratio of residual volume to total lung capacity, if that's more than 50%, puts them at high risk, so a lot of residual volume. The pre-op FEV1% predicted times the percentage of lung tissue that will remain is what will give you the predicted post-op FEV1. So this is a really key one. This gets tested all the time. I'll say that again. If you take the patient's FEV1, whatever their FEV1% predicted is, that's what's just printed out when you get pulmonary function tests, and then you multiply by the percentage of lung tissue that will still be there, and really ideally be functional lung tissue, but we'll talk about that in a few minutes, that will remain, that'll give you a predicted post-op FEV1. If that's above 40%, that's indicative of slightly less risk. If it's below 30%, increased risk, and they are at high risk for needing a post-op ventilation uh, period of time. When you look at the predicted post-op DLCO, that's also very predictive of complications. If it's below 40%, that's the diffusion capacity for carbon monoxide, looking at the ability of the lungs for gas exchange. So again, same thing. Take your DLCO, multiply by your um, percent predicted uh, lung tissue still to remain. That'll get you a post-op predicted DLCO. uh, And then if that is what you're looking for, if that's below 40, that's problematic. VO2 max is something else you hear about. That's the maximum oxygen consumption. A VO2 max over 15 mLs per kilo per minute suggests reduced risk. A VO2 max below 10 is really high risk, and in between is a little bit of a gray zone. You can also look at their SAT during exercise. If it decreases by 4%, that's suggestive of increased risk. And you can look at a six-minute walk test. If that's less than 2,000 feet, that correlates with a VO2 max below 15, and therefore either in that gray zone or at higher risk, depending on how low it is. So I said we'd say more about how you can get a feel for 
the individual lungs and their ability to work well. In other words, what you really want to know when you're calculating post-op predicted values is how much working lung tissue is going to be left. For example, to push it to an extreme, if you have an entire lung that is not participating in gas exchange at all and you take it out, then you're not really going to have your pre-op PFT values. If you had a pre-op FEV1 of 40% predicted and you take out non-functional lung only, well, you're still going to have a pre-op, a post-op predicted value of 40% if you really think about it. So what you want to do if you need to figure this out are split lung function tests. So you can do regional perfusion or regional ventilation. That can be done with radioactive tracers to identify functional areas of lung to help figure out how much functional tissue will be left. So it's actually going to evaluate where, if you're breathing in the markers, where the, where the ventilation is, if you're doing it uh, IV, where the perfusion is, to try to figure out, again, what's actually working in the lungs. As you can imagine, smoking and the effects of smoking are very commonly tested. So you need to know that smoking increases airway irritability. It decreases mucociliary function and mucociliary clearance. It increases secretions and increases post-op complications. Stopping smoking more than four to six weeks pre-op has been shown to decrease post-op complications. Stopping within 48 hours before surgery will decrease carboxyhemoglobin, which shifts your oxyhemoglobin desaturation curve to the right, therefore making more oxygen available to tissues. But it's unclear how much that really matters clinically. And to get the real extent of the benefits in terms of decreasing inflammation, decreasing um, irritability, increasing mucociliary clearance, you really need uh, at least at least those four to six weeks, maybe up to two to three months of abstention from smoking before surgery. Again, as I said before, if you have or suspect an infection, you really want to treat that preoperatively. If a patient has wheezing preoperatively, if it's acute, that should absolutely be a contraindication to elective surgery. You don't want acute wheezing to be going on when you take someone for thoracic surgery or really any surgery. If it's chronic, then all you can really do is try to optimize them like with bronchodilators at effective doses. Sympathomimetic drugs like albuterol and terbutaline, it's important to know how those work. This could come up on a test. So what they do is they increase cyclic AMP, C-A-M-P, and that causes bronchodilation. They also counter cyclic GMP, which causes bronchoconstriction. So there's that balance between cyclic AMP and cyclic GMP, and sympathomimetic drugs like albuterol will push the balance toward cyclic AMP. There's also phosphodiesterase inhibitors, which aren't really used that much, but you might see them come up on a test, things like aminophylline that stop the breakdown of cyclic AMP, therefore increasing the amount that's there and available, but there's a lot of side effects, and so they're rarely used. Steroids can help decrease mucosal edema. We obviously think about steroids a lot for that purpose of decreasing edema. And they can also, as it turns out, prevent the release of bronchoconstrictive substances. They don't tend to work immediately, but certainly can have some immediate effect and then more over time. And then, of course, there are parasympathetolytics like ipratropium, which block the formation of cyclic GMP, therefore, by the other end, pushing that balance more towards cyclic AMP and bronchodilation. When you think about monitoring for these patients going in for thoracic surgery, most of the time an A-line is going to be important for a variety of reasons. They're at risk for swings in blood pressure, and you really want to be able to maintain B2B blood pressure monitoring. They can have 
cardiac compression during surgery, which can cause sudden changes. So that's one reason you want to be monitoring closely. They're certainly at risk for acute bleeding with all the major vasculature that's in that area. And so really need to be aware if something's changing. During mediastinoscopy, one type of thoracic surgery, you want to think about either placing your A-line in the right radial artery, and that then will help you monitor for possible compression of the innominate artery by the scope, or you can put it on the left arm so that you don't get interrupted, but then you want the pulse ox on the right, so that can warn you if there's innominate artery compression, so you can let the surgical team know. In a thoracotomy in the lateral position, you can think about putting the A-line on the dependent arm, which will help you monitor for any axillary artery compression, which might happen with inadequate, for example, axillary roll or support such that you get compression. So you think about an axillary roll. It sounds like it should go in the axilla, but it does not. It goes a little below the axilla. If it's in the axilla, it can cause that compression of the axillary artery. You want to use dynamic methods like pulse pressure variation and systolic pressure variation with your A-line to try to limit fluid as much as possible because these patients are very sensitive to fluid uh, in excess and they're at risk for post-op pulmonary edema and post-op AFib, both of which are exacerbated by fluid overload. There was a time when these patients often got central lines to measure CVP, but as I think we all know, it's not really useful for evaluating fluid status. You may want one for access. That's different. If you can't get good access on a patient with peripheral IVs for any reason, then you may decide to place a central line for good access. Um, the other line that you may hear come up are pulmonary artery catheters, and they're rarely used for thoracic surgery these days unless there's a separate indication like a patient with really significant pulmonary hypertension. Some people might opt to place a PA catheter to monitor those PA pressures intraoperatively, but I think that's relatively unusual. Obviously, one of the big things that we do during thoracic surgery and that is important to know about both for clinical practice and for exams is one lung ventilation. So when you think about one lung ventilation, you might imagine that you're going to lose 50% of your gas exchange since you are taking away 50% about the right lung is obviously slightly bigger than the left lung, but just to make it easy, let's say 50% of your ventilation while still perfusing that lung that won't be ventilated. But because most of the time we put these patients in a lateral position, you actually end up helping out a little bit. So when you shift laterally, about 60% of blood flow goes to the dependent lung, which is the one you're going to be ventilating, and only 40% to the up or non-dependent lung. Well, that's still not great, but it turns out that we have hypoxic pulmonary vasoconstriction. So when the body realizes that that lung, that up lung that you're not going to ventilate, the lung they're operating on is hypoxic because you're not putting any oxygen in there, it will constrict the vessels and more blood will shift to the dependent lung. And so that can reduce the blood flow to the up lung to about 20%. So in general, you can in a lateral position, one lung ventilation, you only have 20% of blood flow going to the lung that's being operated on and 80% going to the down lung, the one you're ventilating. And that's how patients can really tolerate this pretty well. So indications for one lung ventilation, this gets tested a lot too. Absolute indications really are around isolation to prevent contamination of a healthy lung, either from pus or massive hemorrhage or large volume lavage of the other lung. 
So obviously that makes sense if you think about it. If you've got a ton of pus coming from one lung or you're going to have to do high-volume lavage in one lung, you really need to isolate the other lung so that it doesn't get contaminated or else you lose both lungs. So that's an absolute contraindication, uh, an absolute indication. Other uh, absolute indications are bronchopleural fistula or any low-resistance pathway, for example, um, like a unilateral giant cyst or bulla, anything that's going to create a low-resistance pathway such that if you are ventilating through that low-resistance pathway, you're not going to be able to ventilate the other lung uh, that doesn't have that low-resistance pathway. So that is an absolute indication as well. And then, of course, um, that can also come from trauma. So trauma causing a, a disruption, for example, of a main stem bronchi um, would cause that low-resistance pathway. And then, um, of course, VATS is another because VATS really can't be done without isolating uh, and deflating one lung or else you just can't see with the scope. So those are the absolute indications. And then, believe it or not, relative indications for one lung ventilation really are surgical exposure other than VATS. So an open procedure uh, in the thorax is just a relative indication for one lung ventilation, not absolute. To confirm placement, so by far the best way to confirm placement of a double lumen tube is with a bronchoscope. Um, obviously, there are a variety of ways to do this. You can go down the tracheal lumen, come out the tracheal lumen, and see, uh, identify where you are in terms of which is right and which is left main stem bronchus. Uh, you would do that in the usual way by looking for the tracheal rings anteriorly to tell you that right is right and left is left. And then you would, if you're placing a left-sided double lumen tube, look to see if indeed your uh, bronchial lumen is down in the left main stem bronchus, and then you can inflate the left um, the bronchial balloon, the bronchial cuff, and if you see it, just a tiny bit of a rim of it coming um, up into the carina, then that's in good position. You can also go down the bronchial lumen, uh, pull back until the bronchial lumen is in the trachea, identify whichever side you want to go down, usually the left side, and then advance the first bronchoscope and then uh, the tube into the left main stem bronchus to confirm that it's there. Ultimately, you also can and should listen for breath sounds. So you want to make sure that when ventilating through the tracheal lumen, you have bilateral breath sounds. And when uh, ventilating through the bronchial lumen with the bronchial cuff up, you have only unilateral breath sounds on the side that you want them. So that's a good confirmatory test. And of course, if you don't have a bronchoscope, it's the only test. Traditionally, if you can, you want to use a left-sided double lumen tube, and that is because the right upper lobe bronchus comes off very soon after the branch point of the right main stem bronchus. And so if you, uh, it's very difficult to line up. A right-sided double lumen tube is going to have a, uh, an aperture that will allow ventilation of that right upper lobe bronchus, but it's very easy for that to become displaced. And if it does, you can lose your ability to ventilate that right upper lobe bronchus. So because the left upper lobe bronchus comes off a little further down the left main stem bronchus, you have a little bit of a better shot putting it on the left side. You don't have to worry about that extra hole and lining it up with a bronchus. So if you can, even for left-sided, left-lung surgery, you can use a left-sided double lumen tube. You obviously would then blow up the bronchial cuff and ventilate through the tracheal cuff, uh, through the tracheal lumen, and that will selectively ventilate the right lung. So most of the time for thoracic surgery, you can use a left-sided double lumen tube. Now, if they're operating on the left main stem bronchus, then that's where you often cannot do it. 
and you would then need a right-sided double lumen tube. But again, more difficult to place. You always want to keep in mind that it is possible to occlude the left upper lobe bronchus, and so you want to be aware of that. And if you should have a patient who you're ventilating their left lung only, and they were doing fine and they start to desaturate, one possibility is you have lost your positioning and you've slid in a little bit and you're now blocking off the left upper lobe. So that's something to consider under those circumstances. Another way to produce one lung ventilation, of course, is with a bronchial blocker. There are several advantages to a bronchial blocker. So one is that you're going to put it through a single lumen tube. And the advantage of a single lumen tube is it's smaller, it's easier to place. You don't have to change it out at the end of the case if the patient is going to stay intubated. It's place that you can use a bronchial blocker in kids who might be too small for a double lumen tube. If a patient is predicted to have a difficult airway, you certainly don't want to be trying to put a double lumen tube in. You might want to just do a single lumen tube, get, get it in, and then uh, isolate along with a bronchial blocker. If they have a prior surgery with anastomosis and you don't want to put one of those big giant double lumen tubes in there, possibly disrupting the anastomosis, single lumen tube with a bronchial blocker might be a more gentle way to go. If a patient already has a tracheostomy, then you can't fit a double lumen tube through a trachea. It won't make that abrupt turn down into the trachea. And so using a single lumen tube uh, through the trach with a bronchial blocker is doable, uh, where a double lumen tube is not same for nasal tracheal. You can't use a double lumen tube through the nose, but you can do a uh, nasal tube with a bronchial blocker. Um, and then, of course, a patient who's already intubated, who you don't want to have to exchange the tube, if they're already intubated with a single lumen tube, using a bronchial blocker makes a lot of sense. The downside, and it is a big downside of a bronchial blocker, is that it's very easily displaced. It's not as secure as a double lumen tube. And so that is why often we will lean toward using double lumen tubes if we can. If you use a double lumen tube, at the end of the case, you're usually going to remove it if you can extubate the patient. If you can't, most ICUs don't want patients coming to them on uh, with a double lumen tube in place. So you need to exchange that using an exchange catheter for a single lumen tube. There was a time when it was thought that you should use high volume ventilation for one lung ventilation in order to try to maximize oxygenation. But we now know that high volume ventilation in general is bad for lungs and certainly for any lungs at risk for lung injury, which people having thoracic surgery clearly are. And so there isn't a ton of specific studies looking at this, but in general, it's accepted that you should try to reduce your lung volume as much as possible while still maintaining oxygenation and ventilation. You want to keep your plateau pressure below 25 if you can, and so shooting for about half to maybe two-thirds of your prior tidal volume, seeing how they do, adjusting down if you can, adjusting up if you have to, is what makes sense. What do you do when you have hypoxemia during a one-lung ventilation case? So this is something that happens not infrequently, and the very first thing you want to do, of course, is to check the placement of your double lumen tube. They can come dislodged, and if they do, if the placement changes, as I said before, maybe you're uh, in a left main stem bronchus and you've just gone in a little bit too much, and now your balloon is blocking the left upper lobe bronchus, after you've checked the tube placement, if all looks good, then your next move is 
if it's a reasonable, if you're not having acute and really a profound hypoxemia, if you are, if the patient is just profoundly desatting, then you need to ask the surgeon if you can inflate both lungs. But let's say it's just a gradual desat, which is what we often see over time. The first thing would be to think about, at least the most effective thing, is actually CPAP of about 5 to 10 centimeters of water to the non-dependent lung. That's the most effective way. The problem is it can obstruct the surgeon's view, and it can increase the chance of post-op air leaks because as they are making an estimosis and stapling, it may disrupt the staple lines. It may make them a little less secure. And so you really need to talk to the surgeon about this if you're thinking about doing it. Ask them if they mind if you try. What part of the case it's in may dictate whether that seems doable. If you can, giving about 5 to 10 centimeters of water of CPAP to the up lung, the operative lung, the non-dependent lung, those are all the same thing, uh, can be very effective. If you can't do that, then you can try giving PEEP to the dependent lung. That can improve oxygenation, but it can also worsen oxygenation because if you end up causing over-distension of the airways, compressing the vasculature and causing more blood to be redirected to the operative lung that's not being ventilated, then you can actually make the uh, hypoxemia worse. So it's worth a try. Generally, you're going to start around five a peep, and then if you need to try to go up a little, you can and see the effect. But if it gets things get worse, then you, you need to go back down to where you were. So again, check the position of the tube. Obviously, if you're not already at 100% oxygen, you can increase to 100% oxygen. Discuss CPAP to the non-dependent lung. Try PEEP to the dependent lung. And then, of course, ultimately... If you, ha- if you have no other option, nothing's working, either you need to be able to go back to two lung ventilation, or if you can't, if there's no way to do that at that point in the case, you need to talk to the surgeon about either partially or fully clamping the non-dependent pulmonary artery to restore VQ matching. Your choice of anesthetic for these cases, there's not a lot of great evidence. Propofol probably has a little less of an effect on inhibiting hypoxic pulmonary vasoconstriction, which is nice. But inhaled anesthetics are better for bronchodilation, and obviously a lot of these patients can have some bronchospasm at baseline. So either one is probably reasonable um, depending on your local uh, practice. A couple of specific types of thoracic surgery. We touched on mediastinoscopy before. As they put that scope in, it's going to pass behind the innominate vessels and the aortic arch. Also, the left recurrent laryngeal nerve is vulnerable because it loops around the arch. Possible contraindications to a mediastinoscopy are a previous mediastinoscopy because scarring can disrupt things and tamp down some of those vessels and make them easier to injure, SVC obstruction, tracheal deviation, and a thoracic aortic aneurysm. The most common complication is bleeding and then pneumothorax, usually a right-sided. So be ready for and aware of that. You may hear about high-frequency ventilation being used in thoracic surgery as a way to um, be able to ventilate uh, even both lungs, but with a quiet lung field. It's not something that we do and uh, not something that I'm familiar with, uh, but it is something that has been described. You may see patients coming in for surgery for myasthenia gravis to have a thymectomy. Uh, So it's important to know when you think about thoracic surgery, some of the key things that get tested for patients with myasthenia gravis having surgery. One is that neuromuscular blockers, they're very sensitive to non-depolarizers. If you're going to use a non-depolarizer, you should start about one-tenth of the dose, and then you can increase if needed. Although it does seem that Sugamidex works very well. So it may be that in the era of Sugamidex, we don't need to be quite as cautious. Then again, it's probably better to be cautious. You can always give more if you need to. 
On the other hand, they are very resistant to succinylcholine. In fact, the ED95, that's the effective dose for 95% of people, uh, of succinylcholine in patients with myasthenia gravis is 2.6 times the normal amount that you would give to someone without myasthenia gravis. So if you're going to use sucks, you need to increase the dose. If they have too little acetylcholinesterase inhibitor, they can have a myasthenic crisis because they take the acetylcholinesterase inhibitor to prevent their myasthenic or treat their myasthenia. On the other hand, if they have too much on board, they can have a cholinergic crisis. So you need to be aware of both of those. They can look very similar. Both can have weakness, but one way to tell the difference is that mydriasis is what they will have. They'll have dilated pupils in a myasthenic crisis and meiosis or constricted pupils in a pupils in a cholinergic crisis. So looking at their pupils is one way to tell the difference. You also maybe see pop up on a test question, Lambert-Eaton myasthenic syndrome compared to myasthenia gravis. The big classic difference is that myasthenia gravis has fatigability. It gets worse with use. And the opposite is true for Lambert-Eaton, which improves with use. And if they ask about the mechanism for Lambert-Eaton, as opposed to myasthenia gravis, which is destruction of the uh, acetylcholine receptors, Lambert-Eaton is a presynaptic failure to release acetylcholine. Postoperatively in thoracic surgery patients, pain control is really key. There's a few ways to go about assuring pain control. Epidural, obviously, is a classic and very effective way. Intercostal nerve blocks can help, but patients often will still have a lot of shoulder pain because you won't be helping with that. And you have to be very careful doing intercostal blocks because of the very high absorption rate from that area. And so you have to be careful with the quantity if you're going to do that. An epidural or even just epidural or intrathecal opioids has been shown to reduce post-op complications, possibly even improve mortality, including the two classic complications of atelectasis and pneumonia are better with epidurals in place. And so, again, to sum up for complications, the most common atelectasis and pneumonia, you can also very commonly, of course, get effusions, mucus plugging. These patients, as I mentioned before, are at high risk for post-op AFib, especially if they get volume overloaded. They can be at risk for re-expansion pulmonary edema. That's going to be most common with drainage of large amounts of pleural fluid from around a chronically compressed lung. They're at risk for PE from disruption of the pulmonary vasculature, which can lead to anitis for clot. They're at risk for right-sided heart failure. They are at risk for a rare but devastating complication that may get tested called cardiac herniation. And it's important that you know a few things about cardiac herniation because, as I said, it can come up. It tends to be um, more common after right pneumonectomy, but it can happen after either right or left total pneumonectomy. It is rare but carries a 50% mortality rate. It's caused by incomplete closure of the pericardium or breakdown of uh, a closure of the pericardium. It usually occurs within 24 hours of surgery. The presentation depends on the side. So a right-sided herniation into a cavity of a right pneumonectomy will cause impaired venous return and can look like SVC syndrome. Left-sided defects can lead to myocardial ischemia because the edge of the pericardium is compressing the coronary arteries. You can get arrhythmias. You can get ventricular outflow obstruction. So that's what you need to know about cardiac herniation. Bleeding, obviously, is a potential cause, and if the chest tube drainage is more than 200 cc's an hour, that's an indication for surgical re-exploration. And then it is possible also to get nerve injuries like the recurrent laryngeal or phrenic nerves. So those are the things to keep in mind for complications, and that is what you want to know about anesthesia for thoracic surgery.
All right, that is it for this topic. Thank you so much for listening. If you have a comment, go to the website, com. Leave a comment. Let others know what you think, and they can learn from what you have to say. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It helps others find the show. If you're interested in supporting the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show, even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge. It makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. You can also leave a donation anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC. Thank you so much to those who have already made donations and become patrons. We really appreciate it. Huge thank you to our tech lead, Dr. Brian Park, to our social media manager, Kimia Kashkuli, and her protege, who will be taking over, April Liu, and, of course, to Dr. Dennis Kuo, who composed our original ACRAC music. All right, that is it for today. Thanks so much for listening. For the ACRAC podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.